Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode seven of My Way. This is part two of my conversation with fellow Graytonian and woman of the wild, Colleen Begg. But before we get started, I need to ask two huge favors that will require precisely a tap, a scroll, and a tap with any one of your fingers. First, hit the subscribe button on iTunes or Podbean. If you have an iPhone, just click on the My Way podcast written in purple next to the icon. Scroll down until you see five stars and click on any one of the stars you think the podcast deserves, with five being the best. Thanks for listening and enjoy this interview. Can you give me an idea of how large Nyasa is? So it's 42,000 square kilometers, which is 16,000 square miles. Okay. So two descriptions that help. Is one, it's the size of Switzerland, so it's the size of the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other, it's twice the size of Massachusetts. Oh, <laughs> so I can relate to that. You, <laughs> so it depends where you're from. It's right, right. It's huge. Yeah. And that's, it's joy. It's, it's also, it's Achilles heel. Because yeah. trying to conserve something at that scale yeah. It's very difficult and it requires lots of partners. And when you require lots of partners, you require collaboration and that takes very good leadership. And I do think that conservation is a crisis in leadership right now. Yeah. Um, so. And the poachers, are the syndicates local? Are they from outside? It's a combination. So definitely almost all the poaching groups have local guides and porters. A lot of them are from Tanzania or outside, but a fair number of them are also local with some firearms that are coming from police or Guarda de Frontera or border guards. So it's a real combination. I don't think um, it's all organized crime. I think it's a very loose connection of people that use an opportunity and then find the buyers. But certainly there's an element of organized crime in there. you know, I'm not an expert on that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. so I'm not really the right person to ask. Yeah. But um, that's sort of my impression. I mean, I know that some of the people involved in poaching are just young men mm-hmm. from the villages. Mm-hmm. And usually the ones we catch are, the, are those. Yeah. And then what, what happens to them if they are caught? So the conservation law in Mozambique is very good. It's a new law. So there are um, laws in place to put them into jail, um, massive fines. But really, that hasn't been implemented. So we can get them to the courts, but often the cases aren't worked out very well or the the evidence hasn't been collected properly or they are allowed out to pay a fine and then they disappear. So we've had very few prosecutions. And as a result, in the last sort of seven or eight years, there's sort of been this vacuum of governance, which has just exacerbated this problem. Yeah. And it's, it's escalating. So, you know, last year was the first year that Keith's been shot at an aeroplane. Um, it's the first year we've had a scout shot. Wow. Um, our, our guys and the reserve, NIAS Reserve is managed by the government of Mozambique and Wildlife Conservation Society. And then we work under that. And we have an independent project so for carnivores and then manage an area. So we all work together on anti-poaching. And um, 
it's becoming increasingly dangerous. The scouts are only armed with shotguns and the poachers are armed with AK-47s. Right. And they're becoming more confident. I guess it escalates. Like, mm-hmm. anyway. So for me, the hardest thing now, and, and Keith, would, everybody would have a different thing, but the hardest thing for me is sending people who I employ into dangerous situations. Yeah. I never, ex- as a biologist, I never expected to be fighting a war. I mean, do, do you feel like any of the poachers know who you are? Because think, you, you stick out like sore thumbs. <laughs> I mean, I think some do. I think what's kept us safe is that a lot of them has known us a long time. And so what I worry about most is the people who don't know us. Right. And so might come across our camp and not know who we are. But honestly, in the last um, year or 18 months, I've even begun to wonder whether that is enough to keep us safe. Mm. Just because uh, people are desperate. Yeah. And when people get afraid then they do crazy they, things, they do crazy things. Yeah. and that level of loyalty to us is much less than the loyalty obviously to their families and so people will always um, protect their families and so they're protecting their brothers their sons their fathers um, so as we've got closer to some of the poachers things have become more dangerous okay switching gears what are you good at mm. what am i good at i'm good at ideas um and i'm good at bringing disparate ideas from a lot of different fields um, to bear on our project. Um, so I think that's, I'm also good at keeping all our programs in our head and how they interconnect. So I have a very good vision in my head of how everything works together, mm. um, which is necessary because everybody else just focuses on their sort of specific goal. Yeah. And so I can keep broadening it out and trying to make everybody see the vision. So I'm mm-hmm. good at that. Um, I'm also good at developing a culture in our company. Mm-hmm. So we have a, I'm very proud of my team. I think they're amazing. And it has a very positive culture. And it, it wasn't designed, but I, I think it just happened. And what do you wish you were better at? Mm-hmm. I wish I was better at dealing with conflict. I don't deal with conflict very well because I get defensive. Mm. And I, I get afraid. I think that I suffer, and actually I only just now realized that there's a word for it, but I suffer from what people call imposter syndrome. So I often oh. don't feel like I belong wherever I am and that I, I feel like I shouldn't be there, that I'm a fraud. And I've often felt like that, whether I'm in a meeting or whether I walk in, whatever I'm doing. And I never realized there was a word for it, like an actual syndrome. That blows my mind, yeah. <laughs> especially about you, just because I would never, I mean, I guess we, we all have our things, you know, yeah. I would, I would never think that you would feel that way, but yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah. And I feel like that way a lot. And I think it's, um, it really helped me to realize that a lot of people feel like that. Mm. And I'll just have to figure out in my head when, when it's true, when, when I really sh- I'm not in, I really need more skills right. and when it's just my head, I, I, I need more confidence. I wonder if women struggle with that more than men. I think they do. I mean, I don't know anybody um, that I know that isn't struggling with it, actually, when you bring it up. Yeah. But most people, most of it, I think a lot of it's also, um, in conservation, we definitely work in a man's world. Yes. And so I've learned to act in a certain way. And then as I'm getting older, I'm getting more confident to say, actually, I don't think this is the right way to run a meeting. Or I don't think this this is an effective way to do collaboration, whereas before I just would have sucked it up. So what scares you? Uh, personally, what scares me is ruining the lives of our children because of our passion. for. Wow. So it's something that we try and, you know, obviously, firstly, I'm homeschooling. So 
if, if they get to do what they want to do in their lives and I haven't messed up the education, <laughs> it's a huge responsibility yeah. to have school. Well, it's a, it's a gift to be able to do that. I mean, it's wonderful to spend all this time with them. That worries me. The other is the hope that the unconventional life that we're giving them is something that they will value. And then more recently, keeping them safe and hoping that we will still be able to see when that moment comes, mm. even though we are so intense and passionate. If I had a lot of money, I would put that money down on the kids are going to be just fine. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. You know, we, we are, you know, and I think, I think some of it was, and we're getting a little bit more confident, but we got so much pushback when we took them into the bush. You are irresponsible yep. and you're taking them into malaria area and how can you do this and yep. how can you homeschool and, how, you know, like a thousand different things. Yeah. And so, Did you ever consider not doing it? No, never. So it was, this is who we are, we will deal with it. And even now as they move into high school, you know, Ella will probably go to boarding school and she'll love it. Mm -hmm. Finn may or may not, depending on what he wants to do because he's a different kid. Mm -hmm. We also, neither of us are very good at following instructions. So the more people tell us, we just... Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure you'd be really good at what you do now if you were uh, not a rule breaker. <laughs> and also, but the other thing is that I don't think we're employable. I think that we've got to the point now working for ourselves for so long yeah. that we, we would be terrible working for someone else. You've gone too far down we've one gone road. Too far, yeah. We're too opinionated. <laughs> we, um, you know, we have very you know we're very similar in the way we see things we're very black and white um so yeah i think it's done so it's either we're on our own too and we were thinking you know, things have been getting so difficult that we've been thinking about whether we might have to pull out of niasa and obviously so much of our hearts are there it's a very difficult decision and what we do yeah. we want to stop but the interesting thing is it's scary but not scary I, I just, I just know we'd be okay. Yeah, you know? you I would, think, yeah, you would be so okay. So you eventually get this, and it's not that this false confidence, and obviously the finances would worry us and, and whatever, but but that's not what defines how we make decisions, and it never has been right. the safety part of I mean, the safety in that we need the security of the salary. We're so used to living like that without the security of it that I yeah. think it doesn't worry us. Which there's a great freedom in that. Yes, because I know I can go and wash dishes. I can do anything. I mean, I, I don't. I could look after dogs. I mm -hmm. could five and walk people with dogs. Yeah. There's a way to make money. I don't really care what I do. What do you do for fun? Mm. Oh, well, first of all, I need to find more things to do for fun. Um, I read a lot. I need things that switch my head off. I don't switch my head off very easily. So photography switches my head off, and reading switches my head off. And then when I'm in Grayton, we foster dogs which just gives me so much joy. It, I don't know what it is about having a dog, but certainly it's the one thing I miss in my life in the bush. Yeah, lot. but dogs are also very present. They are totally in the moment, yeah. in that moment. If you're petting them on the head, that's where they are. And if they're going amazing. for a walk, that's where they are. And yeah. what's amazing to me is all the dogs that we fostered have been damaged dogs, and yet they, they do. They just live in the moment, and they seem to forget all that. And some of them have a few issues for a while and then they just relax and they forget all that and they just enjoy their moment in the sun. Yeah. And then I can play soccer with them and then I can take them for a walk or they just or just sit with them. In silence. Exactly. Nice. I'm, I'm quite good at... Uh, I was also talking to someone the other day about why I think one of the things we've lost as scientists is time. And if you think of 
Darwin and you think of Freud or Einstein, they used to take these long walks with their pipes and mm. think. And that's where a lot of the ideas came from. But we never just sit still and think. So I think one of the things that I want to do in the next few years is put my phone down and just spend more time where I can just sit and think. Yeah. I actually made a bet with someone the other day. Um, I'm hilarious. on this, this amazing leadership course, and um, we were, <laughs> were talking about what our goals were going to be for the next month. And so a lot of them have got like really, really amazing goals. Yeah. And mine is with a friend of mine, Mia, who's the only other South African on the course, and she lives in Iceland, was just not look at our phones for an hour after we wake up. So make a cup of coffee and just, just enjoy that. Even 30 minutes before I deal with um, Facebook and emails because often I sit there and I answer the easy emails quickly just right. to get them off my list but yeah there's something wrong about that I'm very bad I've always wanted to meditate but I'm, I, I battle with it and it's amazing to me that we actually battle to give 30 minutes I know I mean what is what's happened that we can't do that I often wonder what I never used to be like that and I do think it's my phone oh yeah um, it has to be. Yeah. I don't know what else it would be. Yeah, because I do, you know, not so many years ago, remember just sitting and thinking. And yeah. I daydream. I like daydreaming. Sort of, yeah. What things are most important to you now at this stage in your life? Hmm. So, um, personally, obviously, my family and my relationship with Keith. I've realized that there are so many things that try to deal with you and that we have to keep making sure our family is fine. So mm-hmm. that's the most important to me is, is our family fine? The second is to make a contribution. I just, you know, I'm not religious at all. So for me, the meaning of life is to make a contribution. You've got to somehow leave something behind. And so just trying to make and figure out what that contribution is mm-hmm. and fighting for something. I don't, I often say to the kids, it's, if I had to wish something for them, is that they just find something they can contribute to. And what have you liked best about your life so far? Sort of what are your happiest or proudest mm. moments? I don't live with regret. Um, so I'm not a kind of person that looks back. I don't regret anything, really. Mm. So I would say that uh, what I've loved the most is it's been very unpredictable. Um, it's, uh, I'm not a – I'm quite risk-averse. But actually I love the way our life's just carried on in its own way with the honey badger thing or miasa yeah. and we all have the freedom we have – extremely lucky to have the freedom to be able to do whatever we wanted to do Mm. i'm very grateful for that Mm -hmm. i love the amazing memories i've had with keith um you know he has an instagram account and his isn't a work instagram account so he puts anything from his variety of things and i love just looking through it and realizing all the amazing things we've done together and just how much history because we've been married now 20 years Mm -hmm. and the Amazing history. I love that. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by Nature Reserves. Whenever you feel protective, think of the Nature Reserve. In 1821, some dashing white man named Charlie established the first small nature reserve in England. The first major reserve was established some 50 years later in the United States, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. 
Nature reserves are just one branch on the family tree of land or sea set aside for the protection of flora, fauna, and geological features. Other branches include national parks, marine parks, marine protected areas, conservation areas, wildlife refuges, biosphere reserves, marine reserves, and world heritage sites. Confused yet? Welcome to the club! Despite the tens of thousands of protected areas all over the planet, only 15% of our land is protected and a mere 3.5% of our oceans. And though we tiny humans have succeeded in increasing the overall percentage of protected areas, many more of us are putting severe pressure on those areas. A recent study shows as much as one-third of these areas experiencing intense human pressure such as mining, poaching, development, and the general scourge of short-sighted greed that clings to us like dingleberries. On the upside, South Africa is one of the richest countries in the world in terms of biodiversity, containing 10% of the world's plant species and 15% of the world's marine species. South Africa claims 20% of land and sea for the preservation of nature. Today, many countries and business leaders are finally realizing that humans are, in fact, not above nature, but rather dependent on it. This is leading to a gradual global wake-up call, ranging from divestments in harmful resource extraction to investments in renewable technologies and scientific proof that nature is literally, wait for it, good for us. Nature reserves. When nature is booming, so is the human. And if you could relive one moment of your life, could be more than one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I also don't live in the past, but I mm. do think that our time with Honey Badgers was truly amazing. So mm. there were moments when it was just Keith and I in the middle of the desert in the Nandi when we first saw um, a male and female honey badger that were both, we knew, were both habituated and they met up. And for the first time we recorded their, all the social interaction before they mated and all these males coming in and fighting for an opportunity to go in the hole. And it was just still it was just this extraordinary moment for me that it all just sort of came together in this beautiful place so a lot of the moments that I think back on are that and also when we spent five months going up Africa together and then obviously with the kids there are lots more with the kids so they're all related to family really. yeah uh and have you gone back to where you studied honey badgers no. you know and I haven't gone back to a lot of places so I also yeah. spent a lot of time in Kruger Mm-hmm. and we haven't gone back to Kalahari. I, I kind of, on the one hand, I want to go back and show the children. I think I would like to go back to places I love, but I'm nervous of it. I'm nervous of it um, destroying memory. I yeah. don't know. It's yeah. funny because there's a place in we went to um, Madagascar a few years ago, which I loved, and uh, I'm tempted to go back to a place in Madagascar that we went to, and I think there's something lovely about if you keep going back to one place and becomes your place mm. as a family. But then I'm kind of nervous of it. There are also lots of new places. It's almost like seeing an old love from the past. Like if yes. you've got good memories of it, you don't necessarily want to yeah. see them again and know who they are now. Cause I'm, I'm amazed by people um, who live, they're always looking back to some part in their life. So a lot of people say to us, oh, you must miss the time with Honey Badgers, or that must have been the highlight of your life. Mm. But, I, but we don't think like that. Mm. The highlight of the life is kind of what we're doing now, because uh-huh. um, we love what we're doing now, although it's got all its challenges. We love Nyasa, we love that. 
And we never actually look back and think we want to go back there because we're not those people anymore. I think that if we had to go back and do what we were doing then, we wouldn't find the joy anymore. Right. different. Given your life experience, what is some sound advice you can give? I would say maybe specifically for young people who are thinking about going into conservation and also just life in general. So for conservation, I would say don't expect someone to offer you an opportunity. So we were never offered an opportunity to go and study honey badgers in the cave. We were never offered an opportunity to go into NIASA and start our project. In both occasions and all the others, we've simply gone and done it. We don't expect people to pay for us to do it. We just go and do it and scrimp and have no money for food and eat peanut butter sandwiches until we get results. Then once you've got results, you go to someone and say, hey, I've got this idea. Can you help fund it? And it grows from there. But what I see a lot of people wanting to do is to be given this opportunity and get a salary and somehow be able to just parachute their way in. It, it doesn't work like that. Right. Because they have, you know, a master's in conservation management. So they're waiting for somebody for to. to and, and, you know, we, we worked for free for the last. We didn't earn a salary for the first sort of six years in Yasa. And we used the money from an article to get us the first year we self-funded. Then once we had something, then you have something that you can go to someone and then it starts from there. But expecting to just parachute in. And then just life in general advice? I don't know. I, I guess it would be just, um, I just have a strong moral compass, I would say. And that figure out what you believe in and don't do stuff just because other people tell you it's the right thing to do. I think that both Keith and I have, very firm ideas about what we think are right or wrong. Obviously, there's quite a lot of gray, but we both got it from our fathers. And I think it stood us in very good stead, um, that we know where our lines are and mm. we are stubborn and independent enough that we will refuse to cross that line. And I see too much wishy-washy. People doing it because they want the salary or doing stuff because they, they don't know how to say no or just stand up for yourself. And I, you and Keith are interesting because you're, you both have very strong personalities. So as a couple, how do you make that work? Like, what's the, what's the key? <laughs> I think that we, um, we've always worked together um, and not only worked together, but lived together. So, you know, it's, we've been together all the time, although not as much now just because our, our project is bigger. And we learned very early on to both just do what we're good at. So whoever's good at it does it. Yeah. Um, and the other one can do it yeah. if they need to, if, the, if you're sick or something. But yeah. And it, it divided quite easily. Mm-hmm. And so I know what I'm good at, and he, he's good at other stuff. We also have the essence, the fundamentals of what we believe in are the same. We often differ on, on how to implement it, but we know each other well enough to trust each other that we can have this big argument about it, and that in the end we'll probably get to the middle ground, which is probably the best solution. Mm-hmm. And it's having that trust that you're not, that person's not going to run away when mm-hmm. you push back. So mm-hmm. I battle with that a bit, but mm-hmm. I think that I just, I've learned to, to stand up for myself. Mm-hmm. and know that, that his opinion, while I don't agree with it often, and somehow we'll find that middle ground. So if you had the power to solve one and only one problem in the world, what would it be? Sure. One problem in the world. Uh, I would say food insecurity. I just see people who cannot, I mean at its most basic level, I see people starving that don't have enough food to get them through the dry season. 
and I watch how decision making is affected by people who don't know where their next meal is coming from, that they can't think forward, they can't think of the future, and they cannot talk to you about anything, whether it's conservation or health or anything, because all they're worried about is what am I going to eat today? And I just think that that kind of stress is just destructive. And I know that yeah. sounds like feed all the children kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but when I see it, when I see people just not, not having enough food, yeah. it's just desperate. Well, it's a hierarchy of needs. Like conservation exactly. is not going to get dealt with if yeah, food security with. isn't dealt with. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, I've been reading quite a lot about poverty literature, which is completely out my normal thing, and, and just how decision-making happens and how different, like evolutionary, you're almost designed to make decisions differently when you're dealing with those very basic mm. needs because you can't think forward. And so if we want to solve the bigger problems, which of which there are many, then we have to solve the basic problems. Solve the basic problem. What would you like your, your children and maybe eventually your grandchildren to remember you for? So for my daughter, and, and I guess for my son as well, but mainly for Ella, I would hope that I'm providing a good role model. That she can't have it all, because I don't believe that's possible, but that she can do anything that she wants to, you know, obviously within reason. I don't think that's necessarily true, too. But not just because, you know, just being a girl. I, I want her to have a good role model. That was my legacy for her, is to have a good role model that you can be passionate about your work, you can have a family, you can have a stable relationship, and you can have those things. If, if It's amazing to me how often girls just don't have, are still don't have that confidence that they can be that. Mm-hmm. And I guess um, my legacy for my son would be to treat girls properly as yeah. equals in that. And then my legacy as as a sort of bigger legacy, um, some of it is the leadership and women's leadership, which I'm really trying to move a little bit into and just figuring out how, how I can help because I see so many women in conservation getting stuck. And some of it's stuck just because they just don't get promoted. And some of it's stuck because they don't deal well with conflict and they don't work well in hierarchical structures and they don't know how to maneuver their way in a in a world that's not really designed for the way that women lead. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure that out and I'd like that I'd like sort of my experience to be able to help other people maneuver their way through it. Are there some female role models that you can think of off the cuff who you feel like are providing that solid example? I think there are many. I think mm-hmm. there are many. And um, this homeward bound leadership that I'm on at the moment, which is aiming to give leadership training to a thousand women in STEM, so in science, um, in the next 10 years, I've, some of these women, I'm on the third cohort to the 80 in this third cohort from all over the world. And I'm blown away. I mean, they are just so extraordinary and just doing these incredible things at you know, small levels and big levels. So I think there are many. I think that what attracted me to this leadership program was the power of having a thousand women leading others and then paying it forward. Yeah. Because then you can't like a movement. Yeah. So I think there are many. I think I think they are like Jane Goodall. I think I think she's she's an incredible role model for what can be done. I think that um, Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah. I think and her book Lean In really moved me. I think it was actually given to me by. One of our donors, who's in his 70s, gave it to me and said, you might want to read this book. And 
it too did move me. And so I think they are out there. And I think we need role models at all levels. Um, I see the girls that I work with in the bush are just so lacking in role models. Are there role models for the boys? There are many more. So I think mm. that a lot of the um, a lot of the government officials, uh, most of the teachers, most of the medics, most of all conservation people they see are all men. Anti-poaching? Anti-poaching, all men. So, I mean, obviously there are a few women anti-poaching groups, mm. but it's hard to find those role models for girls. And I can't really be a role model for the local girls because I'm too different. And so, so we've got 40 kids on scholarships at the moment and a very small proportion of them are girls because we just can't get girls up to grade seven. But the hope is that those girls, mm. and you know, you hope you have long enough that those girls become some role yeah. models. It's yeah. hard for them. And, you know, they, they live in a society where by 13, 14, they be married off. And we're battling to find them because we want to put more into our company, but we're just battling to find right. girls or women with the education or the desire to and I do think you know people will say oh you know it, it, people seem to see it as anti-feminism it isn't it's just that men and women are different yeah and the way that they I mean I you know I'm part of this pride and so we're all women and we right, run land right. projects and there's something different about the way that we lead our team about the way that we talk to each other about so you know we have a whatsapp group and the whatsapp group sort of veers from your child's been up all night and you can't think and how are you going to do this proposal and then everybody will help you do it. So from very personal or just like, I can't take it today, to very scientific. Mm -hmm. And nobody judges anybody along that whole sphere. Whereas if it was a different group, yeah. we would have decided, is this a personal group or is this a professional group? Wouldn't be this. Right, <laughs> interwoven thing. So I do yeah. think that mentors, mentors for Phil's is something that you and I and we should think more of. Because I, th I think they, the girls are battling to find us. I totally agree. I battle to find mentors. And, and you know, I'm well-connected. And so I get them from books or whatever else. You know, but right. But imagine how other girls are battling, even when they're not that well-connected. So I, there's something dysfunctional in it. So I guess, I guess we have to figure out how we, how we connect the girls. And how to also get all of those stories out yes, exactly. to more to young more girls and more women in general, I just mean, sharing did, those stories. I mean, did you see that amazing, I think I posted it on Facebook, but also that of the 12 new astronauts at NASA, five of them are women. No. So it's on my Facebook page, so oh. I was just amazed, and I was just, I just said to everybody, get your girls to look at them. Because, it, I mean, you look at their backgrounds, all uh -huh. those women, all come from quite variety backgrounds just some are microbiologists some aren't engineers or whatever but such a strong statement that you want to be an astronaut this is who you got in your head exactly you don't have the, you know you you're looking at you're a female. female exactly you're, you're not, not a male, male arm yeah exactly head. exactly this is who you've got in your head this is you <laughs> yeah and even i mean even things like if somebody wants to do what david Attenborough did yes. a, a woman yes. a girl She's got David Attenborough in her exactly. head. Exactly. I mean, so, who is the figure that comes yeah. to your mind? Nobody. Nobody. My mind. Yeah. And um, yet they are. They yeah. are amazing women um, documentary right. makers. But we just, right. I don't know, we, I don't know whether women are just um, more reticent and so they don't uh, self-promote. And so because women don't self-promote, then nobody can find them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they seem I think so distant. I think that's it too. And I, and I think there are, more opportunities for the men 
earlier on. I may, maybe less so now. I don't know, but um, yeah. yeah. Colleen, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with me and let me in into a little window of your life. My crazy mind. <laughs> your crazy mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thank you. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I run our Facebook page, and a lot of people say that it's, um, they can tell it's one crazy person because it goes off in all these different directions. So, so yes. But so that's good. For listening. Yeah, and I think if there were an application to live in this village, you would need to be a little bit crazy, uh, yes. which is why I started this whole thing in the first place. Exactly. You're like at the epicenter of Exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks for joining me for the second half of my conversation with Colleen Begg. The takeaway for me... Don't expect someone to offer you an opportunity, but rather figure out how to create that opportunity for yourself. And I was also struck when she said, as a conservationist, I never expected to be fighting a war. And it made me wonder, what's something in your life that you never expected to be doing or fighting for, and is it worth it? If you want to learn more about or donate to the Nyasa Lion Project, please look for them online at www.nyasalion.org or on Facebook at Nyasa Lion Project. I have had the extreme privilege of working with Colleen and Keith and their team in Mozambique, and I was amazed and humbled by the work they do there. Follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates associated with our two podcasts, My Way and Lecker Y'all. And if you have any ideas for folks we should be interviewing, email us at podcastcowgirl at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.